Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. We're going to be talking a little bit about chaos engineering. For those who have been listening or following DevOps or in, in particular, kind of the Netflix history of technology, it's something that's taken over a lot more recently. Some people akin it to performance testing. Some people akin it to stability testing, but it's actually more of an ongoing process. So to that end, we have a distinguished set of panelists here today joining us. I'm going to let them introduce themselves a bit, but I'll name them and let them go from there. First of all is Brooke Gravitt, Vice President of Engineering for 4850 Labs. Brooke? Hey, it's me, Brooke. Like I said, VP Engineering Chief Software Architect at 4850 Labs. Been doing things that you might call chaos engineering for a while, although they definitely wasn't called that at the time. So very interested in hearing what everybody else has to say today. Alan Valancourt, our DevOps engineer at 4850 Labs. Hey, everybody. This is Alan. I'm a solutions architect with 4850 Labs. Been uh, kind of living on both sides of the fence, development as well as system administration. So this topic of chaos engineering is super exciting for me because I get to see how it affects both the devs as well as the operations side of the fence. So glad to be here. And also joining us from Gremlin, our preferred tool for automating chaos engineering, Kelly Osborne and Jason Yee. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Jason. Glad to meet you all. I'm director of advocacy at Gremlin. And I think Kelly's just going to hang out and, and kind of observe. So let's get started. I'd like to start a little bit by talking about what is chaos engineering. So Jason, can you give us a brief overview of the history and what chaos engineering looks like from the vendor that's trying to develop the tools to support it? Absolutely. The way that we like to describe chaos engineering is simply that it is injecting small amounts of controlled failure into your systems in order to learn about them. So the history goes back quite a long time, much longer than I think a lot of people realize. Most people have heard of chaos engineering because it got really popular with Netflix and they released a tool called Chaos Monkey. It was part of a larger tool set called the Simeon Army. But even before then, as Brooke mentioned, and doing chaos engineering before it was even called chaos engineering. For a long time, people have been wondering, well, what would happen if I do this thing that seems like it'd be really stupid or it would be catastrophic, right? I remember being a kid and, and driving with my dad and wondering, hey, dad, what would happen if we're going 60 down the, the freeway and you just threw the car into reverse, right? Not a good idea. But I think we all, we all have these notions of like, we know something bad's going to happen. We don't know exactly what. And so that's the foundation of chaos engineering, really, is learning about our systems. What would go wrong if I did whatever? And a lot of that spawned out of the idea of disaster recovery. I think for those of us who have been in tech for a long time, there's a notion of we always had backups and you would make backups of your systems and you would learn to get good at that, right? Testing your backups, implementing your backups and, and seeing if they actually work and doing those processes. But that was all responses to disaster. And so at, at some point, AWS started really pursuing this thing of, well, if people are going to rely on AWS for the cloud, rather than just responding to disasters, how do we actually start causing them and learning from them? And so a bunch of the people that came from AWS and, and early cloud or large scale systems providers or, or operators 
started moving into other areas or other businesses. And so a lot of those AWS folks, people like Colton, one of the founders of Gremlin and Forney, who's the other, they moved to other companies like Netflix. And they actually were able then to build out teams and build out some of these tools. And so that's really where, where all of this started was simply that idea of what would happen if things went wrong and giving that a try and using that to learn about your systems. And from there, you get tools like Gremlin. So you're saying you can't throw a car in reverse at 60 miles an hour? I would, <laughs> I think, I think we've all had that fantasy of doing that. Like if I'm going down the street, if I do that, what's going to happen to the vehicle? That would be an interesting science experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a car anymore, so I'm happy if somebody else tries that. <laughs> no cars anymore. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm even toying with the idea of why would I buy my kids a car? Maybe just give them a, an Uber or Lyft account and just a, an allowance. That's a whole lot of chaos I don't want to deal with, though. But that's a great background on how things evolved into where we are today. And I know that one of the things we, in preparing for this podcast, we talked about is how, you know, the history of this, where did this come from? And all the way back in, you know, aviation or physical design and manufacturing about finding the failure points for something. I wanted to pivot over to Brooke, who's got years and years and years of experience across various IT infrastructures, software design, tradesmen and journeymen of, of many different views of IT financial, retail, commercial, that software side. So Brooke, you know, in your history and from your viewpoint of the current day, how is that translating from what you did in the past, possibly some examples to how you see, you know, chaos engineering working as part of a modern day operational process or infrastructure design? Well, I can tell you sort of the immediate uses that that I've seen really boil down to, I think where we talked about performance testing earlier is that building resilient infrastructure um, to support a business process, especially one that is service oriented and may consume many disparate services, whether they're microservices or external third party cloud services or legacy systems sort of requires you to build in as Jason said, you know, we design for disaster recovery in the event that we don't have a piece of our infrastructure available, you know, what happens? What happens if we experience an outage in a key system that is part of the end-to-end -end transaction flow? And so one of the performance tricks that we do is ramp performance to the point that things start to break, you know, as we're building out new systems, it becomes a little more difficult where you have things that are external to you or you have legacy systems. So you end up using stuff like mock services or service stubs that allow you to emulate things like that. So immediately it's, it's more along the lines of performance proofing your production environments as you're building them out, particularly before go live. It's sort of a, a probably the most immediate and best bang for your buck way to, to take chaos engineering or adopt it rather. I love what you said there, Brooke, about, you know, you, you end up stubbing these things out. When people move to service oriented teams, there's always that developer velocity of being able to decouple teams and work independently. But there's this assumption that code works the way that the other team has said it would, right? Or like if you're in the QA testing space, you have these contract tests and you you ensure that APIs talk in, in the way that they're supposed to, but we obviously know that in reality, that's never the case. As teams move independently, changes get made. So I love that you're using it for, for that as you're, you're doing your work. Yeah, I also find it curious that as you design these things from the infrastructure perspective, you're looking at 
can we handle something that breaks? In that case, you have a kind of singular or a particular perspective that based on the teams or the software or the services where you're saying, oh, yes, we as this service provider for this data or this activity or this business logic, we can handle the quote unquote break. But what we send back does what receives the signal that something is broken or not working, does it handle it well? Jason, you had a really good example of that you sometimes demo around how, you know, maybe having ads awares or ad placements in say an e-commerce site. Yes, yeah, not there. And, and how that breaks the whole flow of the customer experience. Absolutely. Yeah. When, as again, you start building out these service oriented teams, you generally have these, this mental model of how they connect and what's, what's a critical service and what's not. And it's been really insightful for a bunch of our customers and, and other people as they've done chaos engineering to validate that, right? To take that mental model of how they think things connect and what is actually critical and then test that and remove those pieces. And it's incredible the number of times where you, you think this side service, for example, yeah, as we mentioned, ads, or this, this service that just enhances the customer experience, but isn't critical to it. You remove that and suddenly everything falls apart. You pulled out that one Jenga piece that took down the whole tower when it looked like it was just loose. De- definitely. That's great. That's uh, a, I mean, that's actually, it's a very good observation that external forces that you can't necessarily anticipate, particularly ad networks, things like that, that may be in-app purchasing, something that is a, a, a third-party library component that's part of your service delivery flow that you have no control over and is very difficult to test is can be the bane of your existence. Without a doubt, e-commerce as it, as it developed, the shopping cart is the one piece that's really it proves to be a never-ending source of breakage as people incorporate things like I don't know, honey, coupon sites, things where they're injecting things into the shopping experience and the checkout experience that become really difficult for teams to emulate. And, and so if pieces of that, as, you know, they break, then it's, it's really, it becomes difficult for a team to anticipate how to test for that or to absorb some, something like an ad network that's going to bombard systems and cause outages. So that's an interesting observation. It kind of sends me back and, and full disclosure, Brooke and I worked together, man, it seems ages ago at, at a retailer on their e-commerce platforms. And it's, it's amazing how the most obscure piece of code you could ever think of could break that advertising piece or that upsell cross-sell feature or the upload of data or imagery or things, things like that. And it wasn't necessarily on the, on the client side, on the, on the user presentation side. It was all, almost always something behind the scenes. So one of the service calls or one of the other features uh, or inventory information, things like that. But it, you know, that carries forward. We talk a lot about the e-commerce here, but I wanted to kind of circle back and just say, that this is something that if you're, as you move to microservices based architecture or something more attuned to that or using a lot of virtualization, but when you're automating the deployment of these things and you're doing continuous delivery, how does that or continuous deployment, you know, the opportunity for these things to break happens more. So I, I do, I want to bring in Alan here a little bit to provide his perspective. Alan being a, a DevOps engineer, he's more focused on the consultative side of these things, helping customers understand you know, the architectures uh, and the automation tools available to deploy quickly and fast and even respond to 
events, incidents related to things breaking. Alan, as you look and talk to customers that are looking at, you know, maybe a microservices architecture or just containers to run things, how does chaos engineering, how does a tool like Gremlin really work into that consultative approach when you start talking about not just the capabilities of a container platform by itself, but the actual operational aspects of that, the daily care and feeding? Especially when we're talking to teams and I'm talking to teams that have either mature or looking at growing an SRE type organization or DevOps organization where, or they're greenfielding new apps that are heavily microservices. So in lieu of that, they're leveraging Kubernetes and containers, OpenShift, et cetera, to deploy that. And they want to start gaining more visibility. You know, they think sometimes just go to containers. I have a cure-all. I'm, I'm golden. And then they realize, well, what happens if this one goes down? How does it affect? So chaos engineering, I think, is, is valuable because now as they're rolling out different groups, right, with Kubernetes and how I leverage that as an example, Kubernetes, the idea behind it in a perfectly ecosystem of scaling is, you know, every pod is maybe a separate microservice or something to that, different teams working on it. So now you got multiple teams working on these different pieces of the puzzle and being able to know when if, it, if this goes down, how does it affect others? So having your SRE team, your DevOps team, however, dev teams, operations, whatever model companies are using, start injecting this kind of chaos engineering thinking into that is extremely valuable because now you're building that resiliency in your dev and test environments and then you know prepping to go live at launch because we all know coming from a, you know, I used to be a developer as well. So, you know, you build this monolithic, you throw it out there and a bug gets reported, it breaks, takes everything down. But as we go to that microservices architecture, that, that level of complexity, especially with like cloud related things, right? Public cloud and all the little hybrid cloud, all these pieces, there's so, so much to just wrap your head around. And even really smart folks, it's hard, I think a lot of times for them to figure out what did I miss? And tools of chaos engineering that you can bring in can really help a lot with that and identifying those gaps. And, you know, I did the boot camp with Gremlin a couple of weeks ago, and it was super cool. It was simple stuff from a non-developer. It was more, you know, like an operation style. Like if we have a certain amount of traffic, let's do a surge of traffic on our application. Let's see what's going to happen. We did this when I was at testing stuff for BigDennies.com, where I used to work at. And we're like manually trying to throw stuff on to check our load balancers and how we scale. That was our own, quote, chaos engineering. Really lightweight. And we're like, okay, this looks good. Let's throw it out there, right? And so we didn't have anything truly to do it because we didn't, I didn't understand back then and we didn't really have it built in. And I was like, man, if I had a tool like this, Gremlin, back in 2014, 2015, this would have been such a lifesaver for some of the scaling issues that we had when rolling out our stuff. Yeah, I think when you talk about using Gremlin like that, you know, is part of the CI pipeline, when DevOps in particular, what, what is interesting is it kind of gives you the ability to really find out what aspects of your service are stateful and stateless in the sense that as you're going through and testing and using something that is going to intentionally break parts of the infrastructure, you can see end-to-end transactions, which ones are starting to fail because they become, uh, they're very sensitive to, you know, to state. 
And that might be something that you immediately, from a software architecture perspective or even service design, that you anticipated and that might, might mean that there's further decomposition that has to occur, which then drives more microservices, which should allow you to make greater use of chaos engineering, Gremlin, to further decomp that service to make it more resilient, which like you're saying, Alan, is very difficult without a tool like this and was something that was only apparent in an outage after the fact, you know, many years ago. Brooke, I love that you mentioned uh, being able to see end to end, because that's one of the things that as we talk about chaos engineering, everybody thinks of injecting failure into your applications and learning about your applications. One of the nice derivative benefits is being able to test your monitoring. There are so many people that we talk to as we're doing chaos engineering, and the first thing that they discover is they actually couldn't see end-to-end. They had improper monitoring or only a small glimpse of what their services were doing. And so having that chaos engineering has also allowed them to realize that their monitoring wasn't quite right or their logging wasn't quite right and fix that up so they, they can get that full visibility. That's a, that's a great point. One of the bane of my existence at a company where I had a, a role that required me to solve a monitoring issue across the board was the term standard monitoring. And everybody had a different definition of what standard monitoring meant. And that usually meant that they assumed that somebody else was going to monitor the things that they built. <laughs> so it really meant that not a lot was monitored. And so once you start turning things off, you really see it's either crickets and nothing happens. And everybody's like, wait, there's nothing working, but no lights are lighting up. Or you're getting some some bizarre readings and, and telemetry that, that they're lighting up wall boards unintentionally. So that's a good point about the monitoring. You know, what's funny, it brings the story of the unplugging something to see who hollers it kind of a basic chaos type engineer thing we did we had an old web server and it had it was a leftover legacy server with a bunch of sites and applications running on it no one knew who owned what how where, why so we just decided just turn things off and see who calls and hollers <laughs> and lo and behold like two weeks later somebody's like reached out and said hey is this application still running? <laughs> you know, that was, that was our version of doing some basic chaos engineering back then. Unplug it, see who yells. That is one way to do it, definitely. Yeah, I think when we moved out of the, you know, as Armando was talking about, a place we, we worked together before, um, when we migrated out of the old building into the new building, there was one AS400 that was left on the floor that was running. No one knew what it did. Everyone was afraid to unplug it because they thought it might affect somehow the store sales or something. I think that's just <laughs> hilarious. You don't touch it, it just keeps running forever. But I think all of that's a great point, right? You were moving buildings but as people decide to move from their own on-prem or from VMs to containers, essentially you're gonna do chaos engineering whether you want to or not as you start to migrate because you're gonna have to take things down. And if you take them down and you load up whatever that new version is, whether that's a container or even the same service in the cloud, you quickly understand whether that's gonna work or not. Yeah, the similarities to just processes where people are involved and you're trying to come in from an extra from the outside in and understand how a business runs their processes. Some people just do things and they're like, I, I don't understand. I don't know why we do this this way, but this is just how we've always done it. And then you go to change the process and you realize, oh, now we found out why, right? This email 
group used to go to all these places. You, know, you add to that the additional layer of obscurity and complexity of things you can't just talk to, right? IT infrastructure and the software that runs on it. And now you really have to do some, some analysis at a deep level looking at code that takes a lot of time. Or as you said, you can do some controlled breakage and quickly identify where the sensitivities are, where the interdependencies are, things like that. You know, one of the things that surprises me is when we start talking about all this, how chaos engineering is a concept that has existed a long time. And, you know, we refer back to kind of the airline industry and, and how you know, when those when those pilots are training to fly, yeah, they're learning to fly. But once they learn to fly, they're constantly spending hours and hours and hours in the simulator. And they're not flying simple flights from one place to another. They're getting in there and there's someone sitting in the control room figuring out how to make their next hour miserable right? In order to better understand not just how the pilot's going to react to the event, to, the, to something that breaks, to something that's not functioning, but also to how the team in that cockpit is going to work together to overcome it, right? So person that's in charge and then the team that's working, that's performing the act. And back in the day, obviously, there were larger groups of people in a cockpit operating a plane. Now you're down to one to two people. But with that said, the same thing applies to, again, moving from just breakage and understanding in that concept of teams, but discussing not just the teams responsible for the architecture, but the teams responding to the to the event being caused by the breakage. So I wanted to pivot a little bit over to that idea of using chaos engineering and the fact that using tools like Gremlin, you can control when the chaos occurs to support that idea of planned incident events, right? Plan works to say, hey, incident team, you're going to get paged and we're going to treat this like it's an incident. It's under our control, but we're going to treat it and work it as if it were. I want to turn that over. Jason, can you speak to that a little bit? And then I wanted to just let you, Brooke and Alan, banter on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Referring back to that history when people talk about Netflix, and my friend Bruce Wong, who was at Netflix and coined the term chaos engineering, when he had that blog post that announced it, one of the things that I think a lot of people miss out on is noted that when you do chaos engineering, you should have a team of engineers who are ready to respond. And you do this in a controlled manner. And part of the reason why is that practice, as you mentioned, pilots practice and they train for bad situations. And if you think of any professional, they practice, whether they're musicians or athletes. When we think about engineering and what we're doing, do we actually practice for real incidents? And so chaos engineering is a fantastic way to do that. We'll often run what we call game days where we simulate an incident. At Gremlin, one of the things that we do is we'll, we'll have one of our principal engineers cause an outage of some sort. So they'll use the Gremlin product and, and actually do something. And then we'll have that team actually try to decipher it as if it were a real incident and run through all of the playbooks. It obviously helps them as they face real incidents. Now they have this experience, this this practice of knowing how to respond quickly and knowing exactly what to do. And then it also has side benefits of being able to validate our run books and, and other things like that. But definitely practicing for those moments that matter, those, those incidents and outages that you have will make you much better and much faster at responding when it comes to a real one. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I'd never thought about the psychological experiment that in terms of prepping a team for on a game day kind of scenario, the stresses involved in responding to an incident and being able to do that in a way that doing it over and over kind of in a control, you know, a semi controlled manner that everybody's aware of it to, to overcome the anxiety 
of being in the middle of an incident situation, especially if it's something that's customer critical or very high visibility, that could be a fantastic way to put everybody at ease, let them get into that sort of expert mindset of when you've got your professional athlete and they get into the zone, they're really comfortable with running through the run book without having to deal with heightened sense of anxiety or self-awareness that comes with, okay, this is, this is a real problem. I've got to figure this out. They've been through it enough times. They understand it. And that's something that's really difficult to do without something like this, where you can have a controlled chaotic moment where you can actually pull down certain things and cause events to, to occur that can be responded and you can go and check and validate and do it enough times to maybe alleviate that. That's a, that's a great point. So on a devil's advocate on that line, how do you go about when you've got a, maybe a group where they're overworked, understaffed, putting out fires and you say, hey, we're going to throw in this scenario, guys, that's going to take down our stuff is maybe it's a side conversation. Is that a cultural type of thing that you guys see has to change and happen within companies? Because you try to throw that in and say, hey, guys, we're... You know, I know your sysadmins operations keep things up all the time, but then all of a sudden we're going to start implementing this and start taking things down while you're doing your other work and everything else going on. How do you go across and get that adoption? And I guess you can say that kind of thinking along that line. That's a fantastic question. One of the ways that I found works the most successfully with teams that are having a bunch of real incidents is you have an incident and you run through the, the incident response and you always end up with these action items of, well, here's the things that we could do to prevent it next time, or here's the things we should do next time. The problem is then you're waiting for that next time to, to validate what you've done. And so rolling out game days and doing it as a, we just had this real incident and yes, acknowledge that that was stressful and that was difficult, but now we can actually, let's replay that with the knowledge that we had in hindsight, what would we do different? Let's test out those fixes. Let's ensure that those action items or those things that we, we wrote down, hey, we should do that next time. Well, let's actually run through this and pretend that it's the next time and see if they actually work. And hopefully we have a, a better feeling about it. And it starts to take away some of that trauma, right? Because mm -hmm. if, if you left them unresolved and you just say, well, next time we'll have this, you still have that trauma of, wow, this is a horrible experience. But if you get to replay it in a successful way, you start to have better feelings about it of like, yeah, like I can face this challenge. I'm equipped for this now. And yeah, that's a smart way to doing it, especially when a incident was hot off the topic, come back and as part of your postmortem is redoing it in a more controlled way. So that way you can slowly gather the data and, and fix it so it doesn't happen again. Speaking of postmortems, Jason, do you see anybody in your experiences, customers adopting chaos engineering as part of their postmortem or having outcomes of the postmortem to be rolling some sort of maybe test through Gremlin or, or incorporating aspects of chaos engineering back into the follow-up on that? Absolutely, yeah. We, we do have customers that do that, exactly what I said, of, of replaying those incidents. And so that is part of their postmortem is let's update our, our run books and then we'll, we'll do a little chaos experiment and just follow that run book and, and see whether those updates actually worked. Is there any organization where they say chaos engineering is not for us? Maybe they're full of kind of monolithic legacy type stuff. They feel that we don't need to do this. 
you know, how do you kind of convince and, and let someone know that, you know, because they look at priorities as they're adopting applications, cloud, whatever, and prioritize of IT projects and must haves versus the nice to haves. Looking at this idea of chaos engineering to say, you know, this is a critical piece that you need to have in your day to day type of role. How do you kind of go about that, I guess, kind of play when you're having those, you know, obviously we see a lot in our in our space with a lot of education. I see in automation, I see it in Kubernetes, some of our enterprise customers, they're they're not there yet. You know, the, the, you read in the news, I've still said everybody is running OpenShift or Kubernetes. Well, and everyone's running Ansible. Not really. There's still many places where they're not even near that point yet. And there's an education process. So the same idea goes along with the, the kind of chaos engineering mindset to educate how do you go about having those conversations to let them know the importance of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting because I do find that a lot of Gremlins customers are adopting Kubernetes and, and all these things. But for the ones that aren't, while everybody may not be using Kubernetes yet, everybody has incidents. No matter whether you're on Kubernetes or wherever you're running, if you're in the cloud or if you're on-prem, everybody has incidents that are unplanned. And so... It's that question of, yes, you could prioritize other work. And there's always this struggle of prioritizing new feature development versus building up your reliability. But I always like to say that innovation and new product features, things like that, is that's how you win customers, right? That's how you differentiate yourself from your competitors is innovation. But how you keep customers is reliability. People generally don't leave whatever product they've been using simply because there's another version. They usually leave because of a reliability issue. You're no longer delivering that value that you used to. And so it's, it's a balance there of you can't just focus on building out those new features of working on those existing tickets if you're having reliability issues and everybody has some. Yeah. Uh, the question is, are you willing to live with what you've got and are you happy with the reliability that you've got? And I think if you talk to most engineers, they're, they're actually not too happy about that. I bet. <laughs> so there's so many places we can go with this and so much good content. I, I wanted to kind of review some of the things we've talked about and one or two of the things that we haven't quite gone into a lot of detail. You know, we covered how chaos engineering and tools like Gremlin make the ability to discover more or validate more the understandings of complex systems, the interactions and interdependencies, how it's a technical tool for infrastructure testing and software testing, but it really ties back into the teams and the, the people and the processes, preparing them for chaos to occur, kind of numbing them and preparing them for that game day event or incident that happens. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about or a lot actually about the, the overall impact, which is as you're presenting your digital presence, whether that be informational, transactional, or you know, from a retail sales perspective, how valuable that is for understanding the impact of things that break and, and being able to present a good front end, a good presentation to the person using your tools, your software, internal or external business process, et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about a little earlier than the operational side. So how, how chaos applies in the automation world, right? We've talked about rolling things out. We've talked about systems that are running. Now let's take that a step earlier. Let's take that to the actual development, deployment, and, and automation. And 
kind of those concepts of failure at scale uh, or failure across architectures, right? multi-cloud, hybrid at cloud. Let's focus a little bit on that. Uh, and, and Jason, as, as before, I'm gonna let you kind of set it up and talk a little bit about the Gremlin's approach to how they see their customer and their market do it. And then uh, again, go back to Broken Allen to, to add a little bit of our color from what we've seen firsthand. Absolutely. What we've seen from our customers is really the idea that like anything you want to start out, you always start these processes a little bit manually. So people run game days, they get comfortable with the process. But like anything in engineering, if you're doing things manually and you find that they work and you find yourself repeating yourself and what you're doing, well, you should automate it. And so a lot of our customers are, are finding that they'll run a game day and they'll do a, a test. For example, if a service goes down, if you launch a chaos attack and you take a service down, it should restart itself automatically. Well, that's a great thing to test and you test it once, everything works fine, or maybe you learn a few things, so you fix them and you run it again manually. But at some point, you should have the confidence that it's just gonna keep doing that. And rather than wasting your own time of constantly having to do a game day or a manual experiment, you automate it. And so they'll use the Gremlin API and tie it in with their CI CD system so that it'll deploy that service out to a staging environment. And after running through the basic tests, it'll launch a chaos attack and it'll kill it. And then that CI environment can actually check, well, does this service come back? And if so, does it come back within the time that we expect it to? And then if that works, then it passes that test, just like any other test in their, in their testing pipeline. And then it'll deploy to production. So there's a lot of great use in just following those, those tried and true practices that we all have as engineers of doing things to, to validate that they work. And then once we know that they do, just make them automatic so that we don't have to deal with them anymore and we can ensure that they're constantly passing those tests. Jason, that was a great point. I want to, again, ask Brooke, hey, Brooke, uh, how would you speak to those ideas around moving chaos engineering earlier in the pipeline and how that impacts that, the, the ability to, to be more stable? Yeah, sure. I can tell you that one of the challenges that we ran into in automating large-scale service replication, you know, early testing of the e-commerce platforms was uh, not not so much the standing up of things. It was the data sync ups, you know, so data loads, configuration, et cetera. And one of the challenges that was unexpected was related to file system FS checks, and I, I would I want to I don't want to call it data corruption, but uh, data loads from the databases, and some of that came in the form of as environments got knocked down or broken, we had processes that were lingering, things that were still in flight, and over time we began to experience failures in the provisioning aspect of the test environments and the automation. Things took longer and longer and longer to provision, but there was no real clear reason why. And we had failures of tests that seemed to have no clear reason why. And a lot of it was due to the way that things were getting terminated. And we were not really testing for that early. So we were incorporating enough of chaos in the just switching off of infrastructure, even in the provisioning of the infrastructure itself to get a handle on these sort of weird, not necessarily at runtime sort of issues, but really they're more along the lines of as you're trying to build that new infrastructure. So part of of the horizontal scale out sort of it relies on the state or statelessness depending on what the the service is 
and some assumptions that are made there. And those are some of the worst kind of issues to run down when you do eventually figure out that the reason that the provisioning of an environment is now 45 minutes instead of 10 is because every one of the disks is doing an FS check because the, you know, the sort of base image, the Docker container, whatever, was created so long ago that it feels like it's now time to FS check all the volumes. And that's just not something you might think of, you know, unless you're you're constantly doing some of these things. So there are a lot of great reasons to roll that in early as possible, because the last thing you want to do is get down closer to the go live day or when you do want to have automation for horizontal scale out and you don't want to end up with timeouts and things not actually performing the way you'd expect it to because of weird anomaly things that would be very easy to detect if you were doing some of the types of things you can do with Gremlin very early in the CI pipeline, as Jason was talking about doing. Awesome. Thanks for that. All right. All great topics, really. One of the things I want to get everybody a chance to talk about is we've got a lot of listeners who are probably part of organizations that are looking at, okay, possibly chaos engineering, something we want to do, or not even knowing what it's called, but they know the thing that they're trying to accomplish. And they're just now learning, oh, it's chaos engineering. Great. I'm curious your thoughts, and I'd like to hear from all three of you. How would you describe what is the state, the type of team or organization? At, at what point should they start saying, all right, Chaos engineering is something we need to start looking at and building towards or implementing. And that might be two different steps, realizing that they need to start building towards it. And second one is actually implementing chaos engineering. So I'm going to start with Jason, and then we'll turn it over. Thanks. That's a fantastic question again. You've got so many good questions. But I think when it comes down to it, you know, I talk with customers or or potential customers and people all over the world. And they're like, how mature do I have to be? Which I think is a similar question to what you asked. And they have this idea that, well, I have to be really good. Like we have to have an SRE team in place and we have to have all of these things. And to be honest, it's, it's actually much easier if you don't. If, you, if you're just starting out, if you have the fabulous opportunity to have start off Greenfield and you're just building something out, that's a great place to start because you don't have that buildup of bad practices or tech debt and legacy code. So if you have that opportunity to start super early, go for it and do it because there's no better time to start. That said, if you're already on your journey, what do you actually need? Well, we've talked about the people process and I think that's the most important part. You need a team culture that's built around learning and experimentation that values that, right? If you have a company culture where, where learning is not a priority, where people would rather bury their heads in the sand and, and not know about those outages, well, then that's going to be a, a tough sell. But as long as you have people that are interested in learning and making your systems better, then you should start. You just need a little bit of monitoring so that you know what's going on in your systems. It doesn't have to be perfect, but obviously you don't want to do chaos engineering blind or just click refresh on your website all the time as your monitoring tool. You want to have some sort of monitoring. But aside from that, that's all you need to start is a willingness to learn and some really basic observability on your systems. Great points. I'm going to go with Alan. Uh, Alan, how about you? you what, what, where have you seen as you work with customers and you sat down and said, you know what, they're in the right place. What, what, what have you seen? You know, some of our customers are, you know, they're, they're kind of, let's say, bleeding edge. They've got the culture, which in the DevOps mindset is... I think critical 
first and foremost over tools and everything is having that mindset of fast changing, fail fast, and just taking care of things and being willing to learn. And I think the adoption for chaos engineering in that kind of environment would be as simple as saying, oh, cool, this is awesome. Let's do Let's. How soon can we get on it? Organizations that aren't there yet where they're just struggling still takes four days to provision a VM when a request comes in. It might be a little bit more challenging. There are pieces and pockets of people in those groups that want to do that, that are excited about it, but they're hitting, it's beyond their their pay scale, to be honest, you know, they're, they're, you know, some of this stuff is being stopped by higher levels that may or may not understand or head in the sand or think that this is all just going to go by because it's just a fad. But as I tell a lot of people when they get overwhelmed with the container journey, with the automation journey is it's like the elephant, you do small pieces bite off one bite at a time, you you just kind of approach it slow you refactor, you change and adapt. And I think chaos engineering is perfectly suitable. Some of the scenarios and game days you can run, you start off something small, scaling out, load balancing. And then as you get familiar and grow, then you can start adding deeper levels of complexity. And then next, you know, you look back a year from now and you'd be like, we're old hat at this. So thanks, Alan. That's great. Great insights and good points. Now, I'm, I saved Brooke for last and that because I was going to set him up with something and he may or may not know that it was coming. So we had a conversation a few days ago and we are geeks and dream to be scientists at hearts when we were kids. So, so this conversation had to do with, uh, and, and Brooke, correct me if I'm wrong here, it was, uh, it was the Feynman lectures, right? From way back in the 60s and how he was talking and trying to explain quantum physics and all this stuff. Do not hit pause. Do not hit eject. Well, nobody knows what eject is anymore. Or stop. This is a. This is actually going to make sense. And one of the things that was going on is that when you're talking about quantum mechanics and anything like that, there's a phrase that measuring the thing impacts the thing. Just by by looking at something, you impact what that something is doing or is the state of it or however. And that carries forward into IT, which was a great point. This is I'm stealing this from Brooke about how when you can actually instigate your own DOS attacks, right, from over-monitoring something. And what brought that to my mind was that statement about Jason, hey, you don't have to have a lot of monitoring. You just got to have just enough, right? You don't want to measure in the blind. So I, I wanted to set up Brooke with this idea of, as we're looking from the perspective of, you know, Jason's getting started early and Alan's talking about how, you know, where you are in your journey and, and fighting off more than little bites at a time to implement DevOps or chaos engineering or whatever. How do you use when you are late stage maybe or mid stage and they, everybody's got all these tools and we, we don't need chaos engineering. We've got all these tools and know exactly what's happening. How would you, in addressing the question of where a customer is and in, in, in implementing chaos engineering, how would you tie that into that statement around over monitoring, right? Over stressing. Yeah, so you, you're totally going to derail my, my blog post about the quantum mechanics of DevOps. But that's okay. We'll, we'll talk about it just a bit. Like when the point you're making was Feynman quoting the Heisenberg and certainty principle, which kind of states that you can't precisely know uh, both the momentum and the location of a particle at the same time. And so measuring one affects the other. And that is, I felt like there was an analogy to be made with monitoring and infrastructure in the sense that when you're looking at transactions across an end-to-end -end transaction, whatever that means for a service or, you know, an application, there is a, a point at which the monitoring of it, so measuring the thing affects the thing that you can inadvertently you introduce some chaos engineering uh, unintentionally, so to speak, by, you know, dosing your own environment 
just by hitting it too hard with monitoring. You see that a lot of times with people who are doing reporting. They've got some crazy uh, overzealous reporting that just hammers a box on an application server or just too many monitors hitting something and, and interrupting the latency of things that are very latency sensitive, uh, such as financial transactions. And so one of the things that I was bouncing around in that was that how do you approach that in a way that allows you, A, to incorporate chaos engineering further up in the pipeline that won't require you to, say, measure it so hard from a monitoring or reporting angle that you're going to affect the thing by, you know, measuring the thing. And so I think that you can take some of that stuff that you might find out using Gremlin or in chaos engineering up front. And, and the easy way to get started with that from a customer perspective would be to take something very simple as Alan and Jason both mentioned, which might be, say, the web front end. Make that as part of your, I wouldn't say unit test, maybe some of the functional and, and sort of smoke test requirements. It might satisfy the other pushback that you might get from management about breaking stuff intentionally, which is that if you incorporate it as part of your tests that we're going to validate as part of our test suite, what happens when the database drops unexpectedly? Can we still persist stuff? Or what happens to the application performance when we lose uh, a web front end? If it's part of the test suite early stage in, in the development cycle, then that kind of paves the road for chaos engineering to be you know, incorporated more and more expansively down uh, the development pipeline towards production. And the other part of that is then you, you don't necessarily have a requirement from a monitoring and telemetry standpoint to hammer the infrastructure so hard that you unintentionally affect the thing by measuring the thing, so to speak. So does that sort of answer what you're talking about? I would say yes. So with that said, I think that we are about out of time. I'd like to take a little bit of time and give everybody a chance to give some parting thoughts, some ideas, or, or anything you feel that you want to pass along. I will start with Alan. I think this has been awesome just to hear a little bit. You know, chaos engineering is like many of the new DevOps types of terminology technologies is young. And as IT changes, as it constantly changes, organizations just need to start thinking more uptime. You know, as Jason mentioned, you know, if your quality of service is down, someone's just going to go somewhere else. And with everyone working remotely now, it's even more critical because we're all dependent on so many of these web-based services. So building that kind of thought process and how you do things, leveraging chaos engineering early, shifting left, as we say a lot in that kind of pipeline aspect of things is, is going to be a critical thing for success and I believe a differentiator for companies moving forward too. Awesome. Brooke, any parting thoughts? I'm really excited about the conversation today. And it's it's always rewarding when you end up in a time that there is a pairing of a great methodology, which I would say chaos engineering is something that's people want to explore and, and should explore in terms of making things more robust. And there are great tools to, that provide a framework for actually doing that, which is um, something that Gremlin provides. So that is, that's awesome. Awesome. Thanks. And for my part, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Gremlin and Jason in particular for joining us today. Uh, 40 or 50 Labs is, is really excited about doing some more of these podcasts. And this is one of our first ones to go out there. So hopefully you enjoy it. Jason, uh, again, thank you very much. Would love for you to make your final thoughts as we wrap up. Yeah. So first, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat with all of you. But for everyone listening, you know, final thoughts is 
no matter where you are on your journey, if you're still running on-prem or if you've moved to the cloud, if you're an expert in reliability or not, I think we all understand that we can be better and we can, we can always want to improve. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll do a shout out for the chaos engineering community. So if you go to gremlin.com slash community, there's a bunch of fantastic resources that Gremlin has, but we also have the chaos engineering community Slack. And that's just people from hundreds, if not thousands of, of different companies who've all come together and, and we all chat and share our own experiences. So whether you're doing chaos engineering or just thinking about it, I'd invite everyone to join there and just share what you know, learn from others as, as they are on their journey as well. And together, if we all share our knowledge, we'll all become better. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. And with that said, that wraps up this podcast. Thanks again. And we look forward to having you listen to future podcasts. Have a great day, night, evening, afternoon, wherever you may be in the world. And good luck and good wishes. Bye.